Detta är Triathlon Show 272. Up everybody and welcome back to another episode of that triathlon show the podcast presented by scientifictriathlon.com i'm your host michael and on today's episode i interview strength and conditioning coach dave cripps of tritonaceous and coalition performance this is dave's second interview on the podcast i will link to his first one which was episode 213 in the episode description and the show notes but basically what we get into today is uh, some key aspects of strength training that uh, Dave has found uh, that triathletes and endurance athletes, when they get it right, can really increase the effectiveness of their strength training. So you'll hear about that in the interview. I won't spoil it any further. But first, big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Roka are the leading manufacturers of wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses. And I want to mention some of the features they have in their prescription glasses lineup. So this includes things like uh, virtual try-on options. They also have an online vision test, so you can uh, update your prescription in 15 minutes right from uh, the comfort of your home. You also have home try-on options, so you can get four pairs to your home for up to seven days to try. You have blue light blocking lenses, adjustable, bendable frames, so that they can you can make uh, your perfect fit for your face. And... Uh, anti-slip technology the uh, patented geco technology and much much more uh, i want to note that uh, prescription glasses are only available in the united states but uh, for people everywhere roca have a fantastic uh, lineup of non-prescription sunglasses for everything from performance uh, endurance sports and action wear to casual day-to-day wear so check them out and get 20 percent off your order on roca.com forward slash tts and thank you to Zen8 that you can find on zen8swimtrainer.com. One of our topics in today's interview with Dave is home-based strength training, and the Zen8 Swim Trainer is a fantastic tool for this. It is an inflatable swim bench, so it takes up very little space, and you can even bring it with you when at some point you may need to travel again. So, for example, not having access to pools due to being on business trips or things of that nature, uh, you could easily just get put your Zen8 uh, uh, as deflated in your cabin luggage and uh, they would fit perfectly fine right now of course it is quite indispensable for athletes that don't have access to pools but even when pools do open up again it can help time crunch athletes get more consistency in their swim training when you don't have time to get to the pool as frequently as you would like by getting in a short but effective additional workout done from the comfort of your own home Best of all, the swim trainer is uh, only 120-something British pounds when using the 20% discount code that you can get on zen8swimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Now, without any further ado, let's get into the interview with Dave Cripps. Today, back with me on that triathlon show is Dave Cripps. Dave, Dave, how are you doing today? I'm very well, and thanks ever so much for having me back on. I really enjoyed it last time, so I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's uh, it's great. I mean, I, that previous episode was very popular. Uh, the first episode we did with you on strength training, and we covered a lot of the general uh, general things around strength training for triathletes. And uh, 
the idea for this one is to go a bit deeper into some specific topics. Uh, let's not get into a long introduction, but can you give like a couple of paragraph summary of who you are? And uh, so listeners that may not have listened to the previous episode get an idea. Yeah, cool. So uh, I'm the founder and the director of two two things at the moment. So one's called Tritonaceous, which is really the world's only online strength and conditioning coaching. So we work with triathletes across the world, but just with strength and conditioning. Uh, Coalition Performance. So that's such our physical training facility where we do strength and conditioning. We started that five and a half years ago. Um, and now for all the hard work, we're kind of recognized as one of the, the leading facilities in the UK. Uh, and then prior to that, I did my degrees, my undergraduate degrees, my master's degrees in sports science. I then went to work in professional sports, a strength and conditioning coach for seven years as well. Uh, then I had my kids. And that's really what started me going down the path of opening my own facility and, and starting Tritonaceous. Perfect. So, the first topic here that we have on the list for today is to discuss when you're doing your strength and conditioning work, uh, the importance of intensity and intent. Can you describe those concepts and go into some details and give advice around those? Yeah, absolutely. So I suppose all the things that we're, we're covering today are areas that I think particularly in triathlon, a lot of triathletes can get wrong and it's not necessarily any fault of their own. It's usually just due to a lack of quality information and, and how it's conveyed to them. So the starting point on intensity is it's usually a real red herring because most of us, when we think of training and intensity, we think of a percentage of maximum heart rate. So we're used to training at maybe 90% of maximum heart rate or 75% of maximum heart rate. So when we see people talk about intensity, that's what we think about. When we look at strength training, though, intensity means almost the complete opposite. Intensity is to do with the essentially the weight that you're using. So the higher the intensity, the higher um, the percentage of our one repetition max that we work at, which basically means the higher the intensity, the more weight we're going to be moving and the fewer reps that we're going to be using. So what, one of the real traps that most triathletes will fall into is they'll see that, oh, I need to be doing higher intensity strength work. And they'll confuse that with trying to get their heart rate up through the roof um, and almost trying to do like a high intensity interval session with weights, which is really the complete opposite to what they what they want to be doing. So that's really the, the first thing with intensity. But then the next thing is the concept of, well, what, what is high intensity and what's low intensity? And ironically, this is actually a topic that even most scientists and strength coaches don't really convey very well. So if I say to people that... Um, high intensity strength training is the best thing for a triathlete. A lot of the time, the instant feedback can be, oh, you know, heavy weights, they think about bad technique, they think about using, you know, huge loads where they're scraping out maybe two or three reps. But actually, when science has used the word high intensity, it's actually really referring to intensities above 70% of one rep max. So to paint a picture of that, 70% of one rep max is about your 12 repetition max. So then if I suddenly say to that triathlete, well, actually, okay, the resistance is relatively big, but actually it's it's using maybe sets of up to uh, eight or nine reps over maybe four sets. It's a 12 repetition max. All of a sudden they're like, oh, and they're quite surprised. So as I'll kind of lead on to the intensity and some of the tips I'll give further on through, 
yes, high intensity does beat low intensity, but it's understanding the perception of high intensity is actually, it's not necessarily scraping out reps of two and three. It's not using bad technique. It can actually be working at lighter resistances than that. It's just that they've been classified in science as, as high intensity and some people get lost in that. And then I suppose the final point of intensity is, um, well, why does high intensity, the heavier work, beat the, the lower intensity? And I suppose, again, even going back into science and the strength conditioning community and the triathlete community, a lot of the information has been poorly uh, relayed. So there's plenty of science, particularly over the last 10 years, that's compared these two things. And some of the findings actually show that low and high intensity um, produce similar results in certain things. But this is where things get problematic because usually they show that uh, increasing the size of a muscle can be very similar when using high and low intensity resistance. The problem is, is with endurance sports and triathletes, we're not interested in that because obviously strength comes in two forms. We can influence it via the size of the muscle or we can influence it by how well our nerves essentially turn on and recruit the muscle. And we're interested in the latter one. We're interested in recruitment. And the one thing that a lot of those studies also show, but maybe the researchers have been a little bit more quiet in showing just so it doesn't kind of disrupt the findings too much, is that in all situations, strength is more poorer in how well it's improved in the groups that use the lower intensity, so the lighter weights versus the, the, the heavier um, the heavier resistances. And essentially, that's something that we've known for decades through uh, Soviet research um, and, and whatnot. But again, it's a, kind of the scientific reason why if we're wanting to train strength via what we need for triathlon, which is the neurological side of it, turning on the nerves, being able to recruit as much muscle as we can do to produce power, um, we've got to be able to use that higher intensity work. So that's, I suppose, the, the introduction to intensity, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. And uh, it's great to have those terms clarified and, and what high intensity really is and, and what it isn't. Correct me if I'm wrong, but in a lot of the research in endurance athletes that has been done, the the rep range that has been used is typically uh, six reps or maybe five reps. Five to six reps seem to be the norm that I've seen. Have you seen larger ranges like going to more reps with lower weights up to what is still high intensity so still around that 70 percent of uh, one rep max or even have you seen uh, studies with using two or three reps or four reps uh, so on that lower end of the rep range yeah i think most studies you, you kind of uh outlines probably fall into that that middle range of using maybe repetitions around around five or six but we know if we're staying within that zone of greater than 70 percent of one rm we can go higher than that and, and training studies tend to particularly the starting point might be um, maybe a little bit lower down but they might accumulate repetitions up to maybe eight or nine reps the, the big thing with that though is that i suppose the final point linking is the intent I think the one thing that you will always see that differentiates strength training studies which showed improvements in things like efficiency, economy, versus those that didn't is partly percent, potentially the intensity that was used, but also the intent. So essentially, when we're trying to move an object as fast as we can, we're having to recruit uh, a larger pool of the muscle fibers within a muscle itself. We're having to almost turn on the light as powerful as we can. So I describe it a bit like if I'm using maximal intent, so if I was trying to stand up out of a squat exercise as hard as I could, regardless of how much weight was on there, 
essentially what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to recruit as many of the fibers within my muscles to be able to produce that movement with as much power and as much speed. Now, if I'm not using as much intent, what will happen is I won't actually have to fully recruit that muscle. And again, if we go back to the principles of um, physiology and the science of, um, of strength training is the key thing to improve the, the things that improve endurance performance in triathlon is we have to be able to maximally recruit all of those available motor units. And the only way we can do that is via intent. So regardless of, of the weight that's used, if there isn't intent there, particularly when we come up and the muscle shortens, we're going to have, uh, we're not going to have particularly great transfer and gains in the things that we're looking for as triathletes as well. Yeah, uh, that's that's a really interesting point and uh, it does make a lot of sense. Power is force over time. So uh, so for a fixed time, so to say, if you can uh, if you produce more power, so you uh, that then you that means that you're also producing more force or vice versa. Uh, I might have not explained that very clearly, but <laughs> but, I, but I guess that well, I guess that with intent if you lift that that bar uh, more quickly that also means that you're you're producing more force even though the weight is the same because the power increases so so you have that relationship and it's very easy to see then that well more force would require to recruit more muscles which is as you said one of the main goals that leads to adaptations for endurance athletes yeah and, i was just, just going to say that the, the, the way we actually recently uh, illustrated that um i think it was on the instagram was um i did a squat exercise And I used a, uh, a weight that was probably about I don't know, 85% of one rep max. Then I used a weight that was probably more like 70% of one rep max. Um, and the clear difference with the exercise was that the lighter weight moved faster and the heavier weight moved slower. But in both situations, my intent was still as high as possible. So I suppose that's a visual way of how we created what you've, you've just explained there. Yeah, exactly. And uh, can we maybe give some practical takeaways from this particular discussion around intensity and intent in terms of actually planning how to use how, how to how to structure your workouts in in this regard with the, with these two parameters i mean intent is pretty clear uh, <laughs> i guess that the takeaway is to lift with maximum intent that's that's what you're trying to do when you're when you're doing this uh, lifting but intensity so you said we have a range to choose from we could go anywhere up to our 12 rep max or so and still get similar benefits so but how does one then choose mm -hmm. what sort of weights to actually lift or do you periodize that somehow can you give some uh, some guide guidelines around that yeah absolutely so again going back to intensity that the, the range that i think most triathletes will work in is probably between 70 to 85 percent of one rep max for multiple sets so typically we're looking at on average around about four sets of an exercise give or take a set so that means essentially they'll probably be using rep ranges um probably around about four potentially up to maybe nine or ten repetitions so there's, there's quite a range to work in i think from just coaching experience and, and the art of coaching which obviously i've had chance to be able to do over the years is you you realize that the best point to work in is very individual based on particularly the person's background in strength training um, because that influences a lot the the technique that they can apply and consequently the resistances that they can lift at so we usually find there's a little bit of a tipping point or a threshold where there's a sudden drop in the amount of repetitions that somebody could do despite only a small increase in weight so for example it might be that somebody um, can do 
eight reps at 50 kilos on a certain exercise. And in theory, if I add two and a half kilos to that, they might be able to hold eight reps or it might just drop to seven. But in this case, sometimes there can be a threshold where that small increment in weight can see quite a large drop off in the reps. So all of a sudden they might drop down to doing four or five. So it's looking out for those little sweet spots and thresholds where maybe because of your ability and your experience, you're not quite used to using. So that's probably why with um, triathletes and listeners who and most of whom aren't used to doing actual strength training, I'd always advise at least to begin with starting off um, at the lower end, uh, um, so that kind of more 70 to 80%. Uh, that's what we do with, with our triathletes before you even think about going on to the heavier stuff. Um, not just for a safety perspective, but I think in most cases you get bigger bang for buck. Then just in regards to intent, the, the, the big thing that I'm always keen to make sure I say, because otherwise I think people can take intent the wrong ways, in intent with strength training. So this isn't as much to do when you're doing plyometric exercises, but with strength training, is it, it, it's on the, the, the point when the muscle shortens, so what we call the concentric phase. It's never during what we call the eccentric phase when the muscle lengthens. So to paint a real clear picture, if I'm doing a um, – let's use a squat as an example again – on the way down and on the descent into a squat, my muscles are lengthening. The, the target muscles are lengthening. So we're talking about things like quadriceps, gluteals, and hamstrings. During that, I want to control that. I want to be, and I'll talk about this a little bit when we come to that. I want to be controlling that. I don't want to use intent to, to drop as fast as I can. But then what I want to do after I've took that maybe two to three seconds to descend into that squat it's on the way up, it's on the takeoff, it's like taking off like a rocket. That's where you hit the throttle and that's where you use the intent to come on out. Yeah, and and I would even uh, say to athletes to have a, have a brief pause when they reach the, the low end of the squat and before they then with a high intent really try to try to push quickly quickly upwards would you also do that or would you be fine with a non-pause between the descent and the ascent it's a technique you can use i mean we used to use it um, a lot um a lot maybe sometimes to increase what we call the mechanical tension on a muscle particularly if we were looking to increase the size of a muscle um um, because what it does essentially is when you come on up, if you've not had a pause, you can't use the elastic qualities of your tendons, your muscles as effectively. So it will make the lift a little bit harder. Um, but there's a potential benefit. Um, so there's a famous strength coach in Australia called, called Dan Baker who would say that if you do use a pause in, during certain phases of your strength work, for example, at the bottom of the squat, it forces you have to rely on actually generating force through the actual properties of the muscle rather than relying on the tendons as much. So it's certainly a technique you can use. Uh, I think the big thing is to make sure that there's a couple of technical things I'll talk about in a bit that people can use with that. Uh, but as with anything, you can use that for a certain period of time. Then you can go to more of a conventional approach and, and adapt things from there. Yeah, the the main reason for me having advised that is not so much in terms of the adaptations, but the the injury risk and making sure that uh, that they don't do that switch, basically preventing it from being more akin to a plyometric exercise with a going down and then immediately exploding mm -hmm. up. But but I'm not sure if there if that is if there's actually anything to that or if it's just something that uh, I made up. <laughs> no, I, I can from 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 coaching in practice. Um, I know that when people don't descend with control, um, that they, they typically will bounce up out of movements, and they'll typically, for example, on a squat, 
their, their knees will extend before their hips, so the hips pop up in the air. The same happens with a deadlift usually. Um, and, and, and being able to have a brief pause can accentuate them being able to keep into, into the right positions as well. But again, it's very much dependent on the individual. Some people find with certain techniques they work really well. And with other people, you can try the same techniques and it just doesn't work as well. But it's certainly a tool within the toolbox that, that people can use. Right. And one final point, by the way, uh, on intent, because I'm not sure if uh, the listeners will be aware, but actually there's been some, this is not something that is just coaching practice, but this is also something that's been researched. So, but can you discuss on like, or just briefly mention how much has this been researched? How established is it? And if you remember any references off the top of your head, uh, feel free to mention that as well. Yes, I think more recently there's been an interest in um, using conventional strength training. We're essentially doing uh, multiple sets and multiple reps at a given weight, whereby the the last rep of the last set is, you know, it's a real squeeze. Technically, it's perfect, but there's, you know, sometimes you miss it. Sometimes you won't necessarily get the rep. What they've also looked at is, okay, let's still use big intensity. So let's still work above that 70%. But let's not work to that same threshold. So let's not work to that same level of where you're scraping on the rep out at the end. Instead, let's focus on maybe doing a, a you know two or three less reps a set, but working on the intent. And usually, the word that's used in a lot of the studies is, is um, explosiveness. So the ability again to be able to move the bar or move your body as fast as you can. And yeah, again, in endurance athletes, again, both of those have been shown to be favorable approaches, uh, essentially because there's intent with both of them. If you did the explosive work though, and you didn't use intent, you'd be completely removing the key thing that causes the adaptation. So I, from a coaching perspective, um, particularly with those who aren't well-trained in strength training, I would always try and prioritize the more conventional approach um, to strength training like I outlined before. However, as I suppose I'll come to you with some of my practical tips for, for at home training later on, when you haven't got the resistance available, um, using what that science looks at, that explosive work, using that intent where you haven't got the resistance can still at least give you some benefits um, when you haven't necessarily got the weight available. All right, perfect. Uh, and then let's move on to the next topic here, which is technique. What what do you want to say about that? A lot, <laughs> but I'll, 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 I really want to focus on the things, the problems that I always see triathletes have, um, whether that's people who we work with in person, online, or even if you just, you know, if you go on Instagram, you see people put videos up. And I think the first thing is, is technique. Yes, it is about safety. Um, if you use good technique, we know you're not going to have high injury risk. Uh, it's a big reason why strength training, when it's done technically right in a program way, um, there's less occurrences of injuries compared to, to, to endurance training. But one of the big things that isn't talked about as much is actually if you're using good technique, you're going to optimize the loading of the muscles. You're going to target more of the muscles that are going to be important for your triathlon performance. And you're going to get more of a stimulus every rep. In other words, your training session is going to deliver bigger bang for buck. Uh, and when you add that up over multiple training sessions, I always say it's a bit like compound interest. Those small changes make a monumental difference in actually the outcome. And even though there's there's no actual study, and I've looked for it and I've asked others um, over the years that's actually looked at how technique influences those things. Anecdotally, I can say, particularly with endurance athletes, those who are sound with their technique but who work hard and use intent, there is a distinct difference with how well they improve and how well their strength work transfers. 
actually to their swim, bike and run. So common errors that will kind of typically come across. Um, I've already mentioned no eccentric control. So there's almost just dropping in and out of movements. The movement looks essentially very loose. Um, These are kind of vague words I sometimes use, but people who lack technique, usually the the, the movement looks very loose. Uh, It doesn't look very assertive. When when I'm coaching somebody, often I'll talk about, I want to see them really take control of the movement grabbing hold of the exercise during not only the, the, the upwards part of it, but the downwards part of it for, for actually the, the whole thing as well. Because what we'll commonly see, for example, let's use a, we could use a deadlift as an exercise. We could even use like lunge movements. One of the classic areas is, is, is knee valgus, which is just a fancy term for where your knee turns inwards and rolls inwards. And the same will usually happen at the hip. And that's a real thing we want to avoid, A, because it's going to load um, your knee joint a lot more. But secondly, as well, the muscle that a lot of us want to target, your gluteal muscles, they actually prevent that movement. So if that knee's going inwards, we're not using those muscles very well. So a lot of the time we'll see people go into um, strength exercises like squats and lunges, and we'll see a technique commonly happen where that knee will just drop on inwards. So that's why a lot of the time we're using cues and coaching methods to be able to get them out of that typical examples might be as simple as you know just pushing the outwards sometimes and a lot of the time we have to be more specific than that so sometimes we might place a foam roller or a water bottle outside their knee and say look throughout the movement you've got to keep that knee steered to the bottle so we're using a visual cue that can often work really well um, as well another one and i think i briefly mentioned it a while ago was was what we call hip pop um, a deadlift is such a good example. So when somebody's at the bottom of a deadlift and about to lift the weight up, there's almost two movements that occur. The first movement is their knees extend and their hips go up. And then what will happen is their hips will extend and then they'll stand up on out the movement. And again, that's a technique that is, is very common that happens that we want to avoid because usually there'll be a high demand, particularly on your lumbar muscles, your lower back muscles, which essentially we want to avoid. And you won't really be recruiting very well posteriorly the muscles through your gluteals. Again, a target muscle, which is commonly weak. So common tips we'd use to get people um, out of that is to talk about, first of all, uh, getting their shoulder blades in the right position. Because what will usually happen is if you imagine someone's holding the bar, if you go to stand up and you drop your shoulders forward, your hips pop up in the air. So a way to prevent that is almost closing your shoulder blades into your spine. So sometimes I talk about, because I like analogies because people can understand them better, um, almost having, uh, if you went into the supermarket, there's usually two electric doors. They open and close. Your shoulder blades are like the two electric doors. You want to slam them tight and into the middle, and the middle is your spine. That's one common method we can use. So typically with technique is one of the reasons why people aren't great at it. And there's actually two. The first one is, as coaches and as a community, we haven't been very good at giving people a good understanding of what technique is. So if I say to somebody, use your core, that will mean nothing to them because they don't even know what core is. If I tell them to use their glutes, they might know where their glutes are, but how do you use them? How do you turn them on? How do you turn them off? We need to be a lot more descriptive and use things like I've done with the closing of doors. I use examples for the core, like wringing out a wet towel, compressing the spring. We're trying to coach technique by talking about things that people are familiar with. And by doing the thing they're familiar with, we start to recruit the right muscles. We start to use the right movements. Consequently, we end up getting more bang for buck from the exercise. But the last one, I suppose, in regards to technique is, is it's mindset. So for most of us, and again, I have an endurance background. Running was always my thing as, as, a, as a teenager. I wasn't particularly good, but I tried my best at it. 
you're, you never go out and think about detail each and every stride because there's so many strides. When you're on the bike, you never think about every revolution because there's so many of them. Often what I say is, is with, with strength training, technically, you want to think of it more like swimming. So with swimming, because it's technical, you'll think about maybe how your hand's contacting the water. You'll think maybe about how you generate your pull. You'll think about one or two key things at a time, no more, and you'll really make sure they're done well. With strength training, we're doing the same thing. We're thinking about one or two key things that can really make sure technically we're ironing out any of the problems and we're maximizing the right muscles and the right movements. Uh, and we're not getting into this uh, position of just almost like just floating through the exercises, just kind of up, down, in, out, like we would do if we were cycling or we're running. So I think the last thing with technique, again, is it, it is a mindset. And when endurance athletes start to get that mindset and understanding, okay, it's intense focus for a short period where you're using intent. Again, all of a sudden you see a very distinct improvement in their technique. Yeah, perfect. And uh, the next topic on our list is exercise specificity. And uh, this one, I think, will be quite interesting because uh, there is such a thing as too much specificity and such a thing as not enough, uh, if I understand your viewpoint correctly. So so let's dig into that a, a little bit. Yeah, you, you've essentially just, uh, you've answered my first point perfectly. <laughs> um, the, the, yeah, it's either going too specific or too general. Um I met many, many years ago, there's a very famous uh, strength and athletic coach called Calvin Giles, who mainly worked in Australia during the kind of real resurgence of Australian sport around the millennium, but ironically grew up and lived very close to where I do in the West Midlands. And he always used the term of, um, he used it with coaching, but I think it works really well with this, is it's about being a specialist in, in, by being a generalist. So we do want your exercises to have specificity. But there still needs to be a, a, general, a generality to it, if that's such a word. So as a bit of an example, you might have somebody who goes too general. And an example like that may be if they're doing shoulder strength work. So typically um, what a triathlete will do, and again, it's, it's no fault of those. It's just because the information they're given. They might do a military press for shoulder strength to try and make their shoulders more robust for cycling and maybe improve their swimming. So they'll sit down and they'll press some dumbbells overhead. Now, in theory, you are improving the strength of the shoulders, but if we look at it more specifically, you're not actually going to be training the right muscles. You're not going to be training the right movements. So consequently, it's, it's really not going to have any transfer to holding a strong position, an efficient position for cycling, for example, or being able to generate power and propulsion during the pull um, part of your, your stroke during your swimming. So the way I kind of describe it is we want to make sure we're training a fundamental movement that links into our triathlon performance. So as an example, when we run and cycle, we have extension at our knee and our hip when we generate force. So fundamentally, we want to make sure our leg exercises have knee extension and hip extension in them. That's specificity. We also kind of want to make sure as well, we're, we're working in ranges of motion, which are in and around what we'd use. Um, I think with triathletes in particular, sometimes they can take that too far and um, they can see somebody on YouTube do a deep squat maybe like a power lifter who's used to squatting and is made for it, hasn't got the stiff ankles that a triathlete will usually have from doing all our mileage. And they'll, they'll think, I've got to go deep. I actually, the, the, there's, a, there's a chap called Dan who actually I had this conversation with recently. And I said to him, look, if you can go that deep, 
yeah, there might be a benefit of it, but actually, technically, because of his mobility and his strength, he couldn't go that deep. His lower back started to round, so it, it becomes more of a back exercise than, than a hip strength exercise. So I just said to him, Look, what you need to do is just reduce the range of motion. The range of motion you're still going through is specific to the angles that you use when you cycle, um, when you run, and of course, when you swim, because that's a short range of motion. Um, so you're going to be playing to your strengths, and you're going to get better bang for the buck. But the other side of it is, well, there are times where we do need to train isolated muscles. I call them weak links. I often think about it a bit like a car. So um, if you if you had a car and you developed the, the, the power of the engine and the brake horsepower, but you didn't develop maybe the gearbox because the gearbox was actually a little bit um, substandard for the performance of the engine, the, the power going through the gearbox might be too much and then the gearbox fails. So typical injuries that would link into that are things like hamstring and calf injuries. So there, there is a need, and like we do with triathletes, sometimes do have some isolation work in there. So while our, most of our strength training is specific to the movements, we also want to make sure that there is a consideration of some of these weak links. So that's where certain calf strength exercise might come into play, where certain isolated hamstring exercise might come into play, or even maybe with the upper body, um, if we're looking at the, the pulling phase um, of swimming, maybe certain um, isolation work to the, the, the middle and lower trapezius muscles um, as well. So I think if, you, if you're doing those two things, you're going to get specificity right. But yeah, you want to avoid being at one end of the scale or the other end of the scale. It's hitting that sweet spot. What about... so? What was the example there? Because I, th I think we talked about uh, doing things that are, I guess, too not not specific enough. But but did you talk about doing things that are too specific, and uh, <laughs> or did I miss that? No, no, I probably didn't give an example. So an example at the other end of the spectrum in terms of something that can be too specific is maybe doing um, I don't know, like a single leg squat into an overhead press, or maybe doing something like. Um, a reverse lunge on a BOSU ball with some type of shoulder raise. Essentially, it's trying to do too many things at once. And the reason why that often becomes inferior is we know that the, the, the strength stimulus becomes poorer. So there's a fine line that the, the more stable an exercise is, generally, the, the more we can recruit key muscles because there's more stability to it. However, the, the, there is a bit of a caveat with that because to have some degree of specificity, the positions that we have to get into, for example, single leg positions, because, you know, when we do cycling and running and swimming, they are single leg movements. Um, that does create a degree of instability. So we still need that in there to a degree. But what will happen usually when things become too specific is they'll become either too unbalanced, which means we lose the strength overload because balance becomes more um, of a limiting factor. Or we'll use an exercise which is technically just beyond our ability. So we're actually limited by the skill of the movement as opposed to the actual ability to put force through the right muscles. A good example of that um, is maybe where a triathlete's just started strength training and they see somebody on YouTube doing um, Olympic lifting, so maybe like a snatch or something. And I think, right, that person does that. I'm going to do that. The problem they have is Olympic lifting is such a technical movement 
that they're actually going to get poorer returns from that movement because they're so limited by not having the skill and the technique. Whereas if they'd used more of a simple exercise, maybe like a vertical jump to a box, it looks more simpler, but because they've got the technique and the technique's not a limiting factor, they'll get better improvements in what you're trying to get out of that exercise. So yeah, I suppose there's two elements when people can go to specific things. It can be the exercise itself in terms of how it looks and functions, but also th- their ability in regards to how challenging that exercise is. Yeah, totally. And uh, I mean, from from my perspective, uh, or or an example from my side would be, you can make a squat, for example, more specific to to running in particular and to cycling by making it a split squat. Uh, but and then, but you can, but a split squat, a split squat can still be a very stable exercise that you can execute, and you can execute it with some a decent weight so that you are not limited by your actual ability to to execute the exercise. But when you start doing it on a Bosu ball and balancing a jug of water on your head at the same time, then <laughs> it quickly becomes way too difficult. And uh, many of those things that look really, really cool on Instagram are probably not the most effective uh, exercises in, in this sense. That's a, that's a really good example, actually. That that kind of exercise, the split squat, how you described it. We use split squat um, a, a lot because, as you said, it kind of gets that sweet spot. Um, another example of maybe where, and this, this is probably quite, I'm not going to say controversial, but it certainly um, will ring true with more people is a single leg squat is a very common exercise and for some people it can work great for a lot of triathletes though who haven't got sufficient strength who've got poor mobility in the hips the thoracic spine and their ankles it becomes such a unstable exercise it becomes so technical that again even though it's a commonly used exercise a lot of triathletes it actually again goes a little bit too far um, down that spectrum as well but again it, it does a, often a lot, a lot of the time we do actually say there is no such thing as a bad exercise it just depends on what you're training for and what your ability is but generally speaking in the, the realms of triathlon all of those things that we've mentioned there are 110 percent true yeah and uh, i think i had one follow-up point there on something you mentioned earlier um and i'm just trying to remember what it was it was has something to do with uh with the injury risk of uh things i've well i think yes it was about the deep squat example that you had yeah. there so it's actually something that i've discussed uh, pretty recently with uh, a couple of different athletes and uh, and i think that's that's another thing to think about with that exercise but also with any other exercise that you want to take to a more extreme level uh, as a deep squat would be compared to uh, some going only to let's say 90 degrees or so uh, that if you are not somebody who is very very good technically and strong and used to weightlifting then you also triathlon is the main thing that you're doing getting injured in the weight room would be a very silly thing to do <laughs> of course you shouldn't get injured in, like you should try to not get injured period but uh, the kind of worst and uh, least least understandable kind of injury to get would be one that you get in the weight room so so don't put yourself in positions when you are at a too big a risk of injury and uh, doing exercises that are a bit beyond what you can do such as uh, a full squat going really deep that, that would be an example for many triathletes where i think just the benefit compared to the risk is not there it's, yeah, it's, it's a super, yeah, it's a good point. And we often ca- categorize that in a way of saying it's about fitting the exercise to you, not fitting yourself to the exercise. Um, and the safety, the safety then is never an issue and the performance gains will, will always be greater as well. So yeah, d- definitely very true. Yeah. 
All right, well, let's move on to the next uh, part here and discuss uh, reps, which we already did a little bit, uh, but uh, in combination with uh, rest sets and progressions, so essentially workout structure here. Yeah, no, absolutely. So I'll, I'll, I'll suppose I'll briefly resummarize. I suppose what I said in, in the first point a while ago, just so it can stick for for all the listeners. Um, so in terms of the intensity and the reps that we use, generally speaking, seventy to eighty five percent of one RM. Um, so we're looking at multiple sets of anywhere between probably three to ten over four sets, give or take. Is usually a sweet spot. But the, the big thing in the art with this, and I suppose, and this can is- I jump in here yes. with a follow up? Why four sets? Because there have been some research recently which is really interesting about getting almost the same benefits from doing only one set but to very close to failure i think compared to doing three or four sets or even five sets i can't remember the exact specifics but but some interesting kind of minimal effective dose studies in strength training so so i'm curious Mm -hmm. to hear why you would choose four sets yeah i think um well there's two facts to going to the one that you've just said there is conventionally if we look at something like olympic lifting or power lifting so just very power-based sports um and particularly going back to a lot of the soviet work done back many decades ago there was a big belief that if you want to improve maximal strength in the best way um you almost do a a number of warm-up sets and then you almost do one set which is your main working set but it's incredibly heavy the big challenge with that is that takes again to get that overload technically it takes a lot of experience within a lifter to be able to do that I think the big thing that using multiple sets gives is, first of all, there's a lot more research that looks into using multiple sets. Um, secondly, it makes sure that their technique isn't as much of a limiting factor because you haven't got that almost, look, you, you've got one set and it, it, if, if it's wrong, it's wrong. If it's right, it's right. But if you're not particularly able in terms of your ability, the chances are that you, you're not really going to get an effective overload from it. But also, I think even though we are looking at neurological adaptations, which is all about intensity, it doesn't necessarily mean that the volume doesn't actually matter. And this isn't something that's been explored so much, but anecdotally in terms of if you're looking at coaching for this type of thing for triathlon or other endurance sports, there's always been a tendency to make sure that there are a degree of multiple sets because probably the adaptations are greater because there is a degree of volume in there, which actually might be important for that neurological um, adaptation that's required. So even though neurological adaptations aren't necessarily classically down to volume, it doesn't necessarily mean that a certain degree of volume isn't required. And I think in a lot of those studies, if they were done longitudinally over long periods, um, particularly in a population tri- and like triathletes, I think that you'd see probably poorer, although this is just my experience and assumptions being said, you probably see poorer um, performance gains um, within actually what's being done. The, um, the second point, so you have to drop my memory again. We said about uh, the, uh, you said about the number of sets. What was the other point that you wanted to ask me on? Yeah. Uh, the, oh yeah. The second point. So, so that would be uh, the rest between sets. Yeah, so um, I suppose, yeah, in terms of rest, (laughs) it's a big area where things can go wrong. Actually, probably one of the biggest, and it goes all back to intensity. So if you imagine doing an interval training session when you're running, the shorter the rest periods between the reps, the slower the running you would be. So the intensity would drop. Strength training is exactly the same. The shorter the rest period we have up to a certain point, the lower the intensity of what you're actually doing. And because intensity matters to a certain point, 
We've got to make sure there's sufficient recovery. But again, because most triathletes have just been brought up on articles and, and whatnot where it's not been communicated very well, there's a sense that you, you need short rest because otherwise you're not working, you don't get that burn. And again, when we do endurance training, the things that we associate with adapting and getting better is heavy breathing, high heart rate, get a sweat on, uh, and having your muscles feel like they're, they're on fire from all the lactase. With strength training, we know the adaptations to improve triathlon performance are nothing to do with those things. The, the adaptations within the body are actually at the complete opposite end of the scale. So in theory, most research would always say to develop strength and the things that we're talking about, you want to use rest periods probably around about two and a half to three minutes between sets. However, this is where the art of coaching comes in. For anybody who's ever coached anybody who does triathlon or who does endurance sport, they're naturally not typical gym goers. Um, they're naturally used to just doing stuff. So, you know, you don't run for 10 seconds and then stop for three minutes and then run for 10 seconds. You're used to constantly doing work. And coaching experience shows that if you don't put your session together well, uh, particularly well in terms of how you lay it on out, you, your athlete will get bored. And when they get bored, monotony kicks on in, and that will also reduce the intensity. So very much dependent on who you are and who you're working with. Um, you can use certain things to kind of play to that. So one example is, is in rest periods, we do a lot of mobility work. So somebody, a triathlete's still doing something, but it is rest. So it's kind of stealthily done. We might even do, depending on their ability, some like low intensity coordination work. So it's not particularly taxing, but it fits in with um, their coordination work that they'll do for maybe their plyometric and transfer work. That could be things like um, A walking, A holds. So it still means they're doing something to keep them psychologically engaged and to enjoy the experience. Because if you want to get the best results you can from strength training, you've got to enjoy the experience. Um, but it doesn't detract from actually giving sufficient recovery to make sure that we're going to get good adaptation and good gains from the next set. Other things we can use as well is, is supersetting of exercises. So that's where, again, if we're doing a, I don't know, hip strength exercise like hip lift, what we can then do is we can use maybe an upper body pulling exercise, maybe it's some type of pull-up, maybe it's some type of uh, horizontal row, because again, we're, we're using quite distinctly different muscle groups. Then we can go into a rest period doing some low intensity um, um, mobility work. And by the time we've come back around to that lower body, again, we've got sufficient recovery. So in theory, if we just looked at the science, we'd have somebody do their sets, sit down for three minutes and not move, and then do the next set. However, um, the art of coaching shows that it, if you do that, your um, your triathlete or your athlete will get bored. The quality then of their future um, future sets won't be as good because they'll be monotonous and bored, um, and they probably won't enjoy the training. So they'll give up on the training, and then it's a complete waste. So I suppose that kind of that rest period thing comes in heavily to the art of coaching as much as the science as well. Yeah, I one hundred percent agree with all of that, and and. Uh... Totally what, what you see typically is that e and even when for all the best intents of the coach, they do prescribe the two or three minutes rest to the athlete, the athlete doesn't quite follow through with it because they do get bored. So so I think that knowing the why is super important and and we can maybe get into that a little bit. So basically your phosphocreatine stores take roughly that long to get restored to the about ninety percent of their initial level when you when you rest for 
roughly three minutes. So that is the reason because when you're lifting a set of uh, like for a, a few reps, let's call it five, six, seven reps, whatever you're use you're relying heavily on your phosphocreatine stores of course also glycolytic energy but uh, but phosphocreatine stores will empty and that will then reduce your intensity in the next set if you haven't adequately had them replenished by by resting and uh, i guess for me what i've been doing in terms of prescribing things to do so the athlete doesn't get bored i've been doing mobility or prescribing mobility just like you uh, i'm a bit careful with prescribing things where the athlete is actually moving i'm not quite sure i haven't really looked into this deeply but uh, i just have a feeling that the phosphocreatine stores said uh, they replenish the fastest when you're kind of stationary so things like dynamic hip flexor stretches and things like that when you're really quite stationary but you're doing doing something dynamic something with mobility but but without actually doing any sort of exertion or even uh, even a big magnitude movement that, that's what i've been uh, falling back to really for doing between between sets yeah and again it comes a lot down to, to, to the to the athlete and i mean a large proportion of people who who we coach you know in person at our facility and online on tricinaceous it even they find mobility potentially boring you know i'll be honest i, I coach this stuff and i find mobility boring um and if I'm including some maybe um, low-intensity drill work where they're moving, do you know what? I, if you looked at it scientifically, probably that, that might just take the edge off the recovery. Um, however, I, I guarantee that then the, the engagement of that triathlete for the next set and future sessions um, would, would, would be better. And I think it comes into – it's a philosophy that, that, that we've got. I think it's, it's better sometimes to do something 90% perfect 100% of the time rather than something 100% perfect but only, say, 10% of the time. Um, but, again, that, that just comes down to who you're working with uh, and what you feel is going to give biggest bang for the buck, whether that's for another athlete or whether it's for actually yourself and your own training. Yeah, no, no doubt. Uh, that, that is absolutely true. Uh, and uh, so then, so we talked about uh, sets, we talked about a rest, and we've also talked about reps when we talked about intensity. Uh, finally, let's talk about uh, progressions. So this can be how you progress weights or even reps or sets throughout a macro cycle or a season when you're doing strength training or maybe from when you're getting started to when you're getting more more advanced. Mm-hmm. Uh, can, can you elaborate generally on the progressions that you're using and the overloads. Yes, yeah, so again, there's a couple of real key considerations and areas where where people go wrong, and there can be some very simple ways to correct this. And, and the first one is there's a real tendency to want to to chop and change exercises way too quickly, so it, it becomes a very inconsistent training program. So in other words, what will happen is maybe someone will be your body might do, I don't know, two or three weeks on an exercise and then they're on to the next one and then two or three weeks and they're on to the next one. Or even some people will literally change exercises every single week. Now, again, from um, from uh, there aren't many studies really that actually look at the consistency of keeping with a lift over weeks. But there is no doubt through um, right back to Soviet work, right through to current day, uh, anecdotal evidence that shows if you give up on a lift too soon, you are going to limit the adaptations and the benefits you can get from it. And you're going to have poorer performance gains. But it comes back to the art of coaching again. We have people who can happily run eight weeks on an exercise, which is nearer the top end, eight weeks roughly. So they might, for example, do Bulgarian squats for eight weeks. 
And they're cool with that. That, that. That's like me. I can happily Bulgarian squat or do any exercise for eight weeks because I like the challenge of getting better week on week, the, the objectivity of it, and I don't get bored of it. There are other people, though, who aren't like that, and that's cool. And that's where maybe you change exercise, not too frequently, but maybe slightly at the other end of the scale. So what that might look like is um, adapting or changing the exercise maybe after four weeks scientifically yeah it's probably a bit too soon but in terms of actually you're coaching a person not a textbook (laughs) you're probably going to get better buy-in and better progress as a result of that so the first key point is don't chop and change exercises too quickly be consistent with them that four to eight week window is probably a little bit of a sweet spot to be able to to be able to work off um, in terms of actual like progressions of exercises, another classic thing is people think that to progress something, there's got to be quite a distinct change in what you're doing. So the exercise has to change a lot. One of the, one of the really cool things with the human body is, is very small things make a huge difference. So if you take, for example, for running, um, I'm sure everyone who's listening has been in a position where you've gone out for a run and you might have done it on the road. And then for whatever reason, um, you've gone and maybe then gone running in a similar speed, similar distance, but it's been um, on grass or it's been on like different surfaces. And then afterwards, you're like, crikey, you can really feel the muscle soreness a lot more. And it's, again, small things like surface that you run on make a big difference in what actually goes through our body. So it's avoiding the trap of thinking you have to make huge differences to an exercise. So the ways we can progress an exercise and and ways that we use is, first of all, the intensity. Um, We can adapt the intensity we work on. So as a bit of an example, um, through my own training and people who we coach, we might be doing a cycle where we're using an exercise say, for example, a squat, Uh, we do that for four weeks and we're working at, let's say, between 77% and 70% of one repetition max. But then our progression might come in our next cycle. We're actually going to work at a more heavier end of that scale. It's the same exercise, but maybe we're going to be working more at 85 to 80% uh, of one repetition max. So that's one way. The other way is range of motion. Uh, If anybody's... um, corrected an exercise and started to do it a little bit more depth so a bit more range of motion on it they know that that one change can cause quite a lot of extra delayed muscle soreness so uh, examples being um say uh, split squat you you, uh, you alluded to it sometimes when we have people particularly triathletes first come in to split squat to the floor where the rear knee touches the floor can be problematic, uh, particularly if they've got history of knee problems. So we tend to reduce the range a little bit because the range is still good enough for, for swim, bike and run. But what we could do is once they've become competent and able and we think there's a bit more we can get out of that exercise strength-wise for their performance, we could reduce the depth, that, uh, sorry, increase the depth that they go. So having to get a little bit deeper in that movement. And again, we know that that will instantly change um, and act as a progression. We'll be mechanically loading the muscle um, a lot more. Um, a way that we do that, again, on another exercise, um, sometimes we, a classic example we try to know is if we start people off with um, a bilateral hip lift from the floor. So it's a hip lift from the floor. And again, that's quite a short range of motion that your hips come up. But we start with that because technically most people don't do it right. They engage their lower back. They don't engage their gluteal, so on and so forth. But then what we'll do is the progression. We'll still do a hip lift, but we'll actually now get their shoulders 
um, on a bench. So the range of motion that the hips are going through and the knee extensors are going through is much more greater. And that that, that is a significant difference. People will feel the difference with that straight away. So that's an, another really good example of, of, of actually how we can adapt it. So um, there are other ways that people use using bands and chains and all sorts of fancy things that look really cool, but practically usually are probably a little bit too advanced for the typical triathlete and not particularly practical as well. Um, so intensity, range of motion, um, also as well, the eccentric overloads, the last one. So um, you actually described it as using a pause. That can be really good. So um, pause work at the bottom, that can provide a very different stimulus because you can't rely on the elasticity from the tendons as much, but also increasing the time we go down into an exercise as our muscles lengthen. Um, we sometimes might use that for exercises where that is a key thing for what we're looking for from the exercise. So take, for example, if we're doing uh, eccentric calf work in somebody who who's had a calf strain injury most of us have probably had at some stage by increasing the duration of when the muscle lengthens that would seem a very logical thing to do to protect that muscle from future injury as well so there's there's some really kind of um, simple to apply but but really good suggestions on progression and 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 what would you do in terms of the number of repetitions within a block of training for one given exercise uh, would those generally stay the same and you would use those other tools for progress progression that you already mentioned or would you also maybe change the the number of reps like so you could maybe do bigger increases in weights by also decreasing the number of reps or yeah can you talk about how you're yeah. using reps? yeah 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 Re- really important really important question um this comes down again this is i wish i mentioned it actually one of the biggest areas where people go wrong and If we look at what we call principles of training, so when you go to university and do sports science, in one of your first lectures, they'll talk about principles of training. And they're basically the things that you have to manipulate to get your body to continue to adapt. So it doesn't plateau. And and, and when it comes to strength training, there's two variables that we can essentially change, which is going to adapt us and improve our performance, um, particularly our endurance performance for, for triathlon. And that's either using what we call intensification, which is where we keep the reps the same, and the set's the same, but we're just adding a little bit of weight each week, or we use what we call accumulation. Accumulation is each week we're just looking to get a little bit more volume from that strength session. So what that might look like is um, if you've been doing, I don't know, four sets of six reps on an exercise, the following week you might just try and look to get three sets of six, but on one of the sets just try and get a seven And that essentially creates what we call progressive overload. And the challenge for most triathletes, to be fair, I dare I say, not only with their strength training, but also their endurance trainings, they fail to progressively overload their body because they're not manipulating those variables properly. Often a lot of the time what people might do is they might up the weight, but the volume reduces so much that actually the stimulus isn't any bigger than what they would have had weeks before. And that's one of the reasons why so many people plateau with strength work, but dare I say also with their with their endurance work as well. So if people are looking to either intensify or accumulate, and when you're doing this properly with good technique and everything like that, it's subtle changes. You know you're going to get an adaptation and you know you're going to be doing the right things to make sure you're improving economy, efficiency, injury prevention, and all those things that we're wanting to achieve. Perfect. And do you think that when you mentioned there that you – might intensify but then decrease the number of reps so much that you fail to produce an overload do you think that tracking your tonnage so the number of uh, reps times the weight lifted 
is an important variable to keep track of as maybe a, even a master metric for your strength training to or for any given exercise in your strength training program to see whether you're getting it right or not yeah potentially so the, the, the only challenge with that is um that type of calculation if i'm following the same thing will always have a bias towards um changes in reps versus changes in intensity um yeah. but I think fundamentally, if you know, say, for example, you're doing a hip lift exercise, if you've been doing that at, say, 50 kilos and you've done four sets of five reps as an ice benchmark, if you know that you're keeping the volume definitely the same, but there's an increase of weight, if not over the whole set, even if it's just for a a couple of the sets, you you know that that's more than what you've done before. And it's a very simple way of looking at it, but it's probably one of the most powerful ways to be able to make sure that you are getting a progressive overload because indeed sometimes what can happen is people will crank up the weight and they'll think, right, I'm going to do, I'm going to do less reps at that weight. But what that actually ends up happening is, yeah, the, the stimulus becomes poorer because the, yeah, the increase of weight's better, but the volumes drop to such a degree that the adaptation becomes poorer. So that method of just looking at it simply is probably the best way to go about it when you're looking at intensification. Yeah, yeah. And uh, final follow-up on on this. Do you think that generally speaking, athletes might be in the gym lifting at least this time of year? Uh, it would be quite common to to go twice per week, uh, probably not more than that. Some might go once per week, but twice per week would pro- be the recommended amount. Uh, do you think that with that amount of strength training that trying to every week progress a little is should be the target? Yeah, yeah. So uh, first of all, I think this this time of year, definitely, uh, you know, one to two sessions is, is definitely A, realistic and, and B, helpful, obviously. Um, what the sessions comprise of maybe more um, higher volume periods of, of endurance training over the year, things can change a little bit, maybe in terms of the number of sessions or in terms of maybe the content where one of those sessions still remains as a, 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 like a, a heavy strength session and then the other one becomes maybe more of a plyometric or transfer session. Um, so you, we can adapt things in, in that way. Um, but when it comes down to, I suppose, the here and now, you, you have, you, you've got to have the ambition to want to, to beat the week before it's a bit like uh, it's the same with endurance training isn't it and, and again this is why i think progressive overload is, is within endurance sports and triathlon is is one of the most uh, underestimated things that people look at and actually the area most people can make biggest bang for buck because their training doesn't allow for them to actually know if they've progressively overloaded because they've they've not used sim- you don't need simple you don't need like uh really fancy technology to do this i mean you could do it with a pen and paper what we've just described but you've got to have that want and will to try and beat the week before. And you know what? Some weeks, that, that's not going to happen. <laughs> There's going to be an exercise. Um, maybe you've had a huge swim session and your, your shoulders are cooked and it's not going to happen. And that's cool because if you've applied yourself in the best way possible, great technique, great intent, great effort, you've got the most out of the body which you can do. But there's always going to be that want to, I just want to beat that. So it's a bit like if, uh, if you're doing a, um, I don't know, if you're going on a bike ride and you, you're doing a fixed distance it's like myself, if I'm going on a bike ride or a run and I'm doing a fixed distance over weeks, I'm trying to intensify it, I'm looking to get a faster minute mile pace. I'm looking to get a faster average speed. It doesn't always happen, but I've always got that ambition. So absolutely, strength training needs to be looked at in the same way. Won't happen some weeks, but you're always trying to get it there. Yeah, uh, I got to be honest. I, I don't really look at endurance training that way, but I, I do agree with strength training that uh, because we do so much less of it that to get the, the adaptations with a minimal effective dose. Uh, yeah, I do think that endurance athletes should try to 
uh, try to progress progressively overload every single week. Also because it's a uh, it, it's a shorter duration of the year typically that uh, that the endurance athletes actually get in the gym. Um, one question that is not in our list of questions that I do want to get to at this point is I've had this discussion uh, recently again with a couple of athletes and it's regarding. Are there specific benchmarks for how much should an athlete be able to squat uh, in terms of relative to their body weight or do other deadlift or, or whatever? Or do you don't believe in that and think that it's more related to like start where you are and see how far you can progress essentially? What, what do you think about that? Yeah, this is a classic question within strength and conditioning. How much is enough? Um, and it's always been... You know, when I worked in professional rugby union at Leicester Tigers, we were remember saying various times of, you know, well, how, how much is good enough? Because sometimes that might inform then the direction you go with the training. So, for example, if their maximum strength's got up to a certain benchmark, then maybe you start to look more down um, power-based routes. And then, you know, there's some good research, uh, particularly probably from 15 years ago from somebody called Prue Cormie, um, who, who does different research now, who kind of, in elite athletes that were very, very well trained, um, suggested like looking at training that way is quite helpful. I think, as you said in the second half of that question, that's really where the, the answer lies. As I always say when I first sit, do an assessment on somebody, I'm not bothered what the numbers are. The numbers are what they are. So if I'm looking at, I don't know, somebody jumps on a watt bike and does a peak power test, the, the numbers are what the numbers are. If I give them a benchmark and turn around and say, well, actually, you need to be here, that could be helpful. But essentially, and again, this, this comes very much into to, to my and as a department, our coaching philosophy is the, the process is the thing that's going to get you increasing that key thing at the fastest rate. And again, if we're looking at sports psychology and areas like that, benchmarking typically actually probably shows more evidence to be a hindrance than a help. Now, that's not to say overall it, it doesn't have its merits, but I think particularly when you're coaching somebody, the focus has to be very much on the process of trying to do each week the best training, the best quality of training that you can do, and trusting that that will take you in the direction of whatever key performance indicator you're going to improve in, the, in, in actually the best the best way possible. Um, I also think a good training program as well is um, a, a philosophy from a guy called Rob Newton, who's a researcher in Australia. Um, he said many, many years ago to us, uh, training equals testing and testing equals training, which essentially means a good training program is almost like constant testing because you objectively know where you're at. So you can make very good assumptions of how something's improving over time just from the training session itself. And again, that usually takes the attention away from getting very obsessed with outcomes and benchmarks. And sometimes, as you know, you know, obsessions with Strava and, and bits and pieces, people are very, they can become very distracted at focusing on what other people are doing and where they should be rather than focusing on the things that they actually do to get them where they want to be, if that, if that answers the question. Yeah, it does. It does. And we're, we're definitely on the same page there. And uh, I, I think that it's just, even anatomy dictates that we can't say that somebody should be able to lift 1.5 times their body weight in the squat for example because because people have so so different body types that it just makes absolutely no sense even from basic first principles deduction that 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 would be the case because for somebody that might be a reasonably 
easy target to achieve. And for somebody else, depending on their body type, their range of motion and so on, it would be a very, very difficult target that would require them to focus on uh, full time on uh, on weightlifting. So, so I think that, uh, yeah, I, I don't think that it makes sense to set a specific target uh, either in terms of this is what you should reach, especially as an endurance athlete. I mean, I think it's different if you want to ride a Tour de France, then yeah, we can say that you need to be able to have a sprint of 1,000 some hundred watts to be able to win a, win a win a sprint race that's that's different but we're endurance athletes and strength training is a is is a tool that we're using to help our endurance performance so yeah i don't think that benchmarking really in that sense helps either yeah i suppose the way we've always just summarized it is we're appreciative of the outcome where we want to go and sometimes that includes like kpis and benchmarks but we're focused and particularly focused on the process and if if you're doing that you're going to improve those benchmarks as best you can. Yeah, yeah. And the final topic for today is uh, timely, uh, unfortunately, but uh, in many places in the world we uh, have gyms are not allowed to be open and so on So uh, uh, due to the pandemic. So a lot of people are doing their strength training at home. And I'm sure this is something that you have talked a lot about in the last year uh, or so or almost a year. But what are your general tips around what type of strength training to be doing? What sort of equipment do you recommend having at home and so on? Yeah, again, really relevant question and one we've given a lot of advice on, uh, done a lot of content on as well. Mainly because, again, when you you speak to people and when you just see stuff, when you're, you're looking at social media, you can see how people could make you know, really big improvements with what they're getting out of their S&C session at home by just adapting things that often the time cost no money, take no extra time, but can make a huge, huge difference, which actually means, I think, particularly in, in a sport like triathlon, um, unfortunately, and again, it's no fault of the triathletes themselves. It's just lack of information and quality information. Most of the, the way strength training is done at home is, is actually more suboptimal than optimal. So a couple of key things, and I suppose this will link into some of the things we've already mentioned. The first one is intent. We, we've kind of said, look, even if you can't um, have lots of weight, the one thing you can control is the the intent you use, particularly when a muscle's muscle shortening. So for God's sake, on your exercises, they're not going to be slow and labored. They're going to be explosive. They're going to have lots of intent. That will certainly make sure that we're getting something neurologically for our strength, therefore for our endurance and our performance. Um, it might not be perfect because, yeah, we could do a bit more load. But, um, again, training at home, it's not about being perfect. It's about making the most of the situation that, that you can get. So intent's the first one. Another one is, uh, again, it depends on ability, but to, to probably rely more on unilateral. Um, so, for example, single arm or single leg exercises more because you you, you require less overall load so it's a very easy way to be able to make sure that um, you can use body weight exercises more effectively or you just don't need as much resistance or equipment because very few people some people might have some kettlebells at home and you know maybe 40 50 kilos of weight most people i mean say my training facility here i think we've got about five thousand kilos of weight people don't have that but if we're using unilateral exercise that's an, an easy way to first of all be able to to, to play to your strengths in that situation 
using good range of motion. So in most cases, depending on the, the, the difficulty exercise is, um, if we are increasing the range of motion of an exercise within obviously you technically being able to do it safely, um, it requires less external load. So a good example is if, um, if you did a single leg hip lift on the floor, and then you did a single leg hip lift with your shoulders elevated on a sofa or a bench or whatever it might be you have at home. Um, the second one is a hell of a lot harder, a hell of a lot harder. Actually, for most triathletes, even from the floor, can be quite challenging to, to get it right. So, um, again, if we're manipulating range of motion, that's at another angle. Another one that we sometimes use is um, using what we call an isometric hold. So isometric is just when a muscle doesn't change the length, as you'll know. But at certain points in the exercise, particularly the end range, um, there's logic potentially that we can get a heightened stimulus. So if somebody's doing, uh, I'm going to do like a single arm band pull. So someone's standing up and they're doing a horizontal single arm band pull. Often people, particularly triathletes, aren't great at having good strength in their scapular stabilizers, which are basically the muscles that stabilize and move your shoulder blade. They are critical, particularly during key motions for for swimming. Um, that that you know, scapula is really more important than actually when we look further up. Um, at, if we want to say our upper arm, our humerus, and the actual classic shoulder joint, scapula is far more important. So what we can do is because people are typically so poor at recruiting the the, the key muscles that we're trying to recruit, rhomboids, lower middle trapezius muscles. Um, by actually locking in as that hand is right close to the rib cage when that band's at max tension, locking in for a couple of seconds, there's good, there's good anecdotal evidence to suggest that that will almost heighten the activity and the recruitment that we've got through those muscles and give them time to actually be able to have a chance to feel them recruit and maybe get a little bit of bang for buck out of it. It also means as well we probably reduce the amount of load that we're needing um, on an exercise. The last one is rest. And I know I've already mentioned it, but um, it's that notion of understanding that strength training isn't endurance training. Strength training does improve endurance performance, but it does it by not actually doing endurance training. And the logic, the logic of it is almost it doesn't make sense um, because you think, well, you know, if you want to improve endurance, you've, you've got to get those things that we associate with uh, improving endurance. And it's why actually a lot of strength training, even today, is believed to be, but particularly back in the day, even in strength and conditioning, you used to think, well, if you want to improve muscular endurance, you do high reps and you do it with short rest. Uh, ironically, that's an approach that is more favoured towards bodybuilders for muscle hypertrophy, so increasing the size of muscle, and not actually um, endurance performance for swim, bike and run, because again, it just massively reduces intensity. The way I often talk about it without going too off track is um, the higher we can get our maximal strength, and we'll do that better by using high intensity strength training. Um, it doesn't matter how fatigued we are at any given point. If our one repetition max is higher than it was before, if we fatigue at the same rate over the course of a run, our force production will, will always be higher. And again, there's, there's extensive evidence to actually show that. So it, it's resting. It's doing those tricks that we said about using mobility, using supersets, just taking a breather, grab some water. If your heart rate is through the roof, if you look like you've got a massive sweat on, if you're combining and saying your S and C's like a hit session and you've got 10 exercises and it's bang, 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 instantly they're the classic signs of actually we can apply some of these simple principles, the rest periods as well. And you're going to get a hell of a lot more out of your strength training session. Um, so hopefully those bits, again, people that people can take away straight away and actually just put into action because they are so straightforward. 
Absolutely. And and one final uh, question or follow-up to this, and I'll go first here, actually. One of the best purchases that I made throughout 2020 was an adjustable kettlebell, so I could adjust the weight by removing plates. So it goes from, I think, roughly 4 kilos to uh, to 20 kilos or maybe 18. It's in pounds, actually, so I don't know exactly, but, but four, 4 to 18 or 20 and uh, and there are six plates in it that I can remove, uh, or even eight, six, I think. So so it has a number of weights there in between. So depending on the exercise, I can adjust it perfectly. And uh, with that kettlebell, uh, I can do really most of the strength training I would, I would like to do uh, even with with high load, high intensity, uh, because when when you choose the right exercise, then that is more than enough for you to to get a really really good good intensity to it. So anyway, uh, that's for me being a huge game changer in terms of home based uh, strength training. So so that's a tip that I would like to give to all the listeners that uh, if you have the possibility, if you are doing strength training at home, that's a great piece of equipment to have. And again, because it's only one kettlebell, it doesn't take up a lot of space, so so it's brilliant. And then the second one is uh, gym tiles that you can get, or gym floor tiles, I should say, that you can get on Amazon for very cheap and just to protect an area where you might habitually do strength training. And I actually have it in my, uh, also under my bike, or my indoor biking area. So so I have a little setup here in my office where I can bike and I can strength train. And, uh, and those, those gym floor tiles are, are always set up to make it, very quick and easy to get changed and do a good workout there. But do you have any uh, particular piece of equipment for home-based training that you would like to recommend to people? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the, the one you proposed is a, is a great one because it's very practical and there's going to be that ability to be flexible to what you need. Um, so actually, we had to think about a lot with this with um, tritonaceous because we were aware not only because of the, the, the pandemic, but also as well for people new to strength training and whatnot, they're not going to have invested in you know X, Y, and Z. And for some people as well, they just don't want to go to the gym. They'd rather have invest some money in having the, the kit that they need in a pain cave, wherever that is, whether it's in the garage or they've got something a little bit more substantial and be able to do it that way. So we've got we kind of put a little bit of a list together. So um, aside from what you've said. Um, Plate weight. Now, plate weight is very dependent upon, obviously, your ability. Um, and usually, they, they, they come in different amounts. And ideally, we're talking about the bigger plate weights, like the olympic size plate weight, just because if you're doing a hip lift exercise, for example, and you haven't got a barbell, um, a bigger weight is just much more easy to balance on you. Um, and they come in five, 10, 15, and 20 kilo amounts. So again, they're very practical. And what it also means then, um, as kind of another step, if, if you've got a, a just an Olympic barbell um, with a pad on it, so you can just take the pad on and off, um, not so much for squatting, but particularly for hip lifting exercise, just so you don't have a bar on bone. Um, it means then those weights can also become functional and, and able to be used um, during those exercises, as well as um, body weight exercises where you can use the plates. So for example, planking, other core types of exercises um resistance bands very simple when it's used right can be really powerful it's just making sure you've got one that's um it's strong enough <laughs> so it's not kind of too light and easy um it's going to be durable enough to actually provide the right intensity uh, and also not snap at the same time so i'm not so much talking about mini bands you know like the really thin physio type ones you get i'm actually talking about like a proper resistance band they usually come in like red black 
purple they're the kind of typical ones i think for most people having a purple or red one typically works quite nicely and then i think um it's kind of maybe slightly more icing on the cake but again relatively inexpensive particularly when we think as triathletes what we can spend on certain equipment just a basic rack or a cage um so a rack enables you to be able to rack on off when you use a barbell on your back um so that can be for squatting lunging bulgarian squats whole host of things um if you've got more of a cage um or you could just have a rack and a chin up bar but if you've got a cage that usually combines to be able to do vertical pulling exercises it also is a place for you to easily secure bands to um and, and also um the final thing would be a bench as well um it just an adjustable bench always works really well um, not just for strength exercises in particular but particularly for, for mobility work so i think you might mention like hip flexor stretching you know if you can pop your foot up on a bench it's usually just a nice heist and um, when the knee's on the floor to, to, to get your mobility working so i think the key thing with this is is that actually um when you're using the right kit you don't need lots um in in, in the most advanced way a home-based triathlon snc gym the the, the most um extravagant way should just have um um, a rack and a chin-up bar or just a lifting cage, which would, would focus on both bits, should have a bench, appropriate plate weight, um, a barbell, a resistance band, um, and maybe something like an adjustable kettlebell or an adjustable um, uh, dumbbell. If you're doing that, there is more than enough you can do. And that's why, again, um, we, with the triathletes we work with online with Tritonaceous, we never tell them that you need um, any, any, any more than that. So a, a lot can go a long way. Yeah, yeah. That's obviously something that requires its space. But if you have that space, <laughs> yeah. it's brilliant. And and one of my athletes, he actually did that uh, over the course of uh, slightly before the pandemic. So uh, a bit more than a year ago, he invested in his home own home gym in that way. And and doing the math afterwards, it was surprisingly inexpensive. And yeah. definitely over time, you save up on the cost of going to the gym easily. Uh, or that's what uh, the way that he, the, as much as he paid for it, he will do that anyway. Uh, I. Yeah, I just want to uh, to highlight those uh, the resistance band that you men- bands that you mentioned. The, they are absolutely brilliant. Something that even people living in a, in a an apartment like I do uh, can and should get. I actually don't have those big ones yet, but they're on my list to get maybe this weekend <laughs> as we're recording this because they're they're absolutely brilliant. I rely on them a lot when I go to the gym. And one thing that you can use with, for example, resistance bands, but also with things like your uh, stretch cords for swimming. Uh, or the Senate Swim Trainer, which is the new sponsor of the show, uh, is a door anchor. So that's something that you can yeah. put in the door, and then you can just attach your uh, your uh, resistance bands to that, and and do your exercises with them. And you can even move it to have it at the right height, and it just makes things pretty pretty easy and convenient for you when it comes to using those resistance bands. Yeah, no, again, all, all of those bits are really logical and helpful. And I think, you know, when, when the pandemic's over, um, over, as most gyms like us were able to reopen for more in the, the back end of the summer and into the early winter, uh, people make that decision of either they, they can, again, they can go to a relatively inexpensive gym. Like if you just go to your, your local council gym, you're probably going to have most of that kit um, in abundance than, than what I've mentioned. But equally for the people who aren't really into that, who actually think, yeah, I'm not really into the gym, um, Again, like you said, you can kit out for you know, very little money when you compare to what people typically spend on all sorts of gadgets for triathlon. Um, a, a more than suitable um, 
kind of space um, at home, whether that's in the corner of a room, whether it's in the shed or whether you've got something a little bit more purposeful. So, so there's always an option there. Equipment should never be a limiting factor for anybody. Obviously, at our training facility, we have some real icing on the cake stuff and bits and pieces like that for in-person coaching. Um, but fundamentally, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's the be-all and end-all. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, that's about it for the topics that we have to cover. Uh, is there anything else you want to mention? Anything that you got going on with Tritonaceous or Coalition Performance? Yeah. So again, um, all the stuff that we've described, we put out, I mean, we post daily on Instagram stuff to do with all of this, videos, um, um, photos, again, very different to what's usually seen. We've got a YouTube channel that we put stuff on each week. There's probably about four hours worth of strength and conditioning content for triathlon on there as well. So there's abundance of content that people can see for three. We've got a free ebook if people go to our website. So there's an abundance of information on our Instagram, YouTube channel, and on our website. Um, and then again, for people who are actually looking for strength and conditioning support specifically for triathletes, again, if they go to tritonacious.com, they can learn more about um, how we do that via what we call the triathlete training platform form so uh, there's something for everybody hopefully <laughs> perfect and uh, in the show notes and the episode description of this episode we'll have the link to your previous episode where we uh, kind of it, we went through all the basics of strength training for triathletes and uh, discussed a number of different topics there but this one is uh, can be seen kind of as a follow-up to that first one so listeners that haven't listened to that first interview i highly recommend you go and do that but uh, thank you so much, Dave, for your time and for coming on and sharing your knowledge. It's uh, much appreciated. and I really enjoyed the chat. Thank you. Absolutely loved it. Absolute pleasure. I hope you enjoyed that interview. I want to make a small uh, personal addition for, just from my side uh, to our final topic on home-based strength training. Uh, I should say I'm recording this outro sometime after we conducted the interview, so apologies if I'm repeating something we already mentioned or I may, I may have talked about in the interview itself, but I just want to make sure I comment on the equipment side of things when it comes to home-based strength training uh, specifically. So Dave mentioned quite a number of items that uh, you might want to have in your home gym. And uh, while I totally agree that all of those things are absolutely amazing to have uh, at home, it obviously does depend a lot on where and how you live. I would think that for most athletes, even if you have a house and a garage, it's probably not because you just have a lot of empty space, but it's probably used for things like having your car in it and so on. So for most, I don't think it's realistic to expect that you can have a squat rack and sets of weights to go along with it, as great as that, of course, would be. And it is possible for some, but not for most. So I just want to say that you can do really, really good home-based strength and conditioning work with a more minimalistic set of equipment. And the equipment that I would recommend uh, investing in if you have a normal kind of living situation with not a lot of space, uh, you just need to get your strength training down, done at home uh, without it taking up space and things that you can stuff away pretty easily, is I would recommend, first of all, an adjustable kettlebell. One of my best purchases of 2020 for sure was an adjustable kettlebell. By adjustable, it means that you can remove and add back plates. So you can have a kettlebell that in one 
piece of equipment you have anything from a five kilo weight or a four kilo weight to a 20 kilo weight uh, the one that i have is in uh, in pounds so it goes from 10 pounds to 40 pounds and then depending on the exercise you can just adjust it to the precise level that you want and need and with kettlebell based exercises that's really all that you need you don't need anything heavier typically than that so that is a fantastic piece of equipment so versatile that you wouldn't believe it uh, that's yeah that, that, that's one of my top products of 2020 without a doubt and i would recommend that anybody that does home-based strength training gets one of those then the next thing we mentioned in the interview as well power bands so strong elastic bands that you can use for various exercises and i also do like those smaller elastic bands that we mentioned the physio bands i think they've called them Uh, they are great for exercises like clamshells and uh, sideline leg raises and so on so both of those kinds of bands have great use cases and they don't take up any space so get both both of those they would be my recommendation Next, a door anchor. And this is shout out here to a past guest of the show, Menachem Brody, who recommended them on his last interview on the podcast. That is something that you can attach, for example, while your elastic bands to uh, through in a door, uh, in, in a door frame by, by having that door anchor. Uh, so basically it, it gives you an anchor point to do resistance work with. Uh, it also works with your stretch cords or your Senate swim trainer. All these sorts of things, a door anchor can be a really, really great tool to have. Again, doesn't take up any space, is cheap. It is really a perfect addition to any home gym. And finally, a stability ball. This one admittedly takes up a little bit more space just in terms of storage, but it's not a lot. So if you can live with that, then I think this is a fantastic piece of equipment. Again, it gives you so many options in terms of exercises you can do for things like core work and hip and glute work. I think the disability ball is really the best tool that you can possibly have. And uh, and I would highly, highly recommend having one uh, in your home. So that's uh, yeah that's that's basically the the setup that i would recommend i think that with that you can do most anything most anything can be adapted to a home gym if you have those basic pieces of equipment a lot of people have been asking about whether the strength training plan that we have on scientifictriathlon.com is uh, applicable for home-based strength training and the answer to that question is that unfortunately it's not or the next few months i will probably uh create one uh, a new plan that is for home-based strength training specifically but uh, i'm still working on the advanced triathlon plans before getting on to that project so in the meantime just use knowledge gained from interviews like this one to put together your own home-based program or you can use the strength training workouts that i have in the free covid19 training plans that you can also find on scientifictriathlon.com uh, as a basis for your program because those plans do con- contain strength and conditioning uh, workouts designed specifically for home-based uh, strength training as always you can find the show notes for this episode on scientifictriathlon.com where we'll link to all the websites and social media of tritinaceous and coalition performance uh, dave's businesses and also Dave's previous interview, which was episode number 213. And finally, remember that you can check all of the strength training episodes that uh, we have on the Triathlon Show by going to the podcast page on scientifictriathlon.com and filter through the category archives. You can filter based on strength training and you'll see all the episodes pop up there. 
on Thursday, we have another Q&A coming out. And next Monday, another great interview with, uh, I don't know, at the moment of recording, that is unclear. So let it be a surprise, but do subscribe to that triathlon show so you don't miss it. Big thanks to our sponsors, Roka, that you can find on roka.com. Check out their wetsuits, trisuits, swimskins, goggles, high-performance eyewear, and prescription glasses and sunglasses, and get 20% off your order with the promo code that you can get on roca.com forward slash TTS. And thank you to Senate that you can find on senateswimtrainer.com. Use the swim trainer to improve your technique, power, and stamina, even when you don't have time to go to the pool or pools are closed. And do that while practicing good core activation thanks to the engineered instability of the swim bench. Get 20% off your order on the swim trainer with the promo code that you can get on senateswimtrainer.com forward slash TTS. Thank you, as always, for listening. Keep training smart and keep loving triathlon.